One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Eileen Warnos are voiced by an actor. She killed seven men in cold blood. She did not kill in self-defense, but instead was motivated by hatred of men. There's no chance of stairs in keeping me alive or anything because I'd kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. Seven men murdered, only six bodies found. From 1989 to 1990, these men fell victim to sex worker Eileen Warnos as she hitchhiked along Florida's highways. Some were just giving a woman in need a ride. Others parted money for sex, but they all paid the price as picking her up cost them their lives. Was Eileen's murder spree fueled by rage and anger after decades of abuse at the hands of men? What's the real story of this rock-loving biker chick dubbed the Damsel of Death? Over the course of six episodes, we speak with detectives, witnesses, and experts to delve into the case of Eileen Warnos, tracking her notoriety as America's first female serial killer, and questioning if she, too, was a victim. We will also deep dive inside the mind of a monster, hearing Eileen's innermost thoughts and feelings from letters she sent from death row to her best friend, Dawn. I'm criminal psychologist, Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is season five of Mind of a Monster, Eileen Warners, episode two, from rags to riches to rags. Welcome to the Sunshine State on this hot June day of 1976. Daytona Beach, Florida is where the party is. Harley Davidson's cruise by, girls rollerblade down the strip, and hundreds of college students soak up the rays, as well as the beer. Americans are flocking to the coast, including 20-year-old Eileen Warnos. She's hitchhiked her way almost a thousand miles to escape Michigan, doing sex work for cash along the way. To get a feel for the place, I want to speak with someone who knows the Daytona Beach area inside and out, 
Retired Chief of Police for Marion County, Brian Jarvis, led the Warnos case. Brian, you worked in the area. Tell us what it was like in the late 70s and 80s. Daytona Beach in the 1980s was a haven for partying. I guess that's about the best way to put it, because uh, you would have a uh, bunch of spring breakers that would go there over spring break. You would have a large summer crowd, people coming for the winter. So year-round, it was it was going. It was hot. The atmosphere itself was very lively, uh, a lot of alcohol, a lot of uh, partying, and, and overall, uh, yes, there were some families uh, also that visited, but I think the the younger crowd was more dominant at the time. Kind of a fun party place. It must have been interesting to work the streets as an officer. Could you describe Eileen Warnos to us? What was she like? Aileen was a drifter that basically had no childhood. There wasn't anybody that wanted her. And I'm not making excuses, like that's no reason for you to go up, grow up and kill people, but uh, she had a horrible childhood, bottom line. It, it was very, very bad. And uh, as she grew older, she started traveling a little bit more. She migrated to the Daytona Beach area, which she loved. She absolutely adored going to Daytona Beach. Uh, it was just the scene that she liked, just the, the kind of places that she could hang out in. She would uh, prostitute to make money. She would, uh, I guess you could say, play a tough role and uh, try and make it seem like she was tough. And I am sure she was. But the problem that she had was that when she was, let's say, in a good mood or in a normal mood, it just took the flick of a switch. It was just something that would set her off and she would just go 180 degrees and become a different person where she would now be violent and nasty and yelling and and you wouldn't know when that would come you wouldn't know what would set her off but something would always change it for her and it's that switch in her mood that begins eileen's path of criminality two years before arriving in daytona beach at just 18 She's arrested in Colorado for driving under the influence, disorderly conduct, and firing a gun from a moving vehicle. In Florida, she's still hustling and picking up guys along the coast to make a quick buck. But her hopes of a fresh start here will be short-lived. But to really understand her descent into crime, we need to look further into her past. What was Eileen's criminal history like before she started killing? Prior to doing this, she had a couple of arrests. And there really wasn't anything with that much of a violent nature as we saw. She was arrested for destruction of property. She was arrested for uh, possession of a weapon at one point. She had a forgery in Florida. She had um, possession of a firearm also in Florida. But nothing where she was physically attacking that I can recall that she was ever charged with. You mentioned that Eileen could snap or switch from docile, calm to aggressive right away. Was that a history for her? Was that common? Or is that something that happened after the killings, as far as you know? There were times when we were documenting her background where that came out. Uh, for example, there was uh, an instance when she was in Troy, Michigan, uh, where she was playing pool, which was one of her favorite pastimes. And uh, there was an incident there where she ended up going off on somebody, getting into a, a bar fight, breaking and damaging some of the property in the bar. So uh, there were times that we did see that in the past. 
by the age of 20, Eileen's been arrested more times than most criminals are in their entire life. And of course, she's also a sex worker. Thinking back to the 80s and 90s, how common was it to see sex workers along the highway? The sex worker trade back then, yeah, it depends on where you were, uh, would be uh, moderate to heavy in some areas, the, the interstates, the truck stops, the places where um, they felt most likely to be able to pick up a job uh, is where you would see them, not necessarily just walking around town, but at the, the high volume areas where they thought they could make money, is that's where you would see them. Okay. And was it a risky line of work at the time? It was at times risky. And again, you're taking a chance. You're going with a complete stranger. And typically the female's going to be not as strong as the male, just typically speaking. And yes, it could, it could get violent, but we didn't see this much violence. Now, I'm not saying they reported it all the time either, because there were certainly enough cases where they'd go on with their jobs and not report something. So you, you wouldn't get an accurate representation there. As we know, Eileen never met her father, who died by suicide in prison. She was also abused and made homeless by her alcoholic grandpa. Ultimately, she never had a strong role model to guide her onto the right side of the tracks. In May 1976, Eileen is hitchhiking around Daytona Beach and meets a millionaire yacht club president by the name of Louis Gratz Fell. It was a bizarre and unexpected whirlwind romance, like something out of a fairy tale. But she was 20, and he was nearly 70 years old. A poor girl from a broken home meets a rich guy, falls in love, and just weeks after meeting, they get married. I want to know what Eileen's best friend Don Botkins made of it. That is crazy. He picked up Eileen, prostitute, and felt sorry for her, and must have took a liking to her looks and thought she was cute, and she was polite, as she normally was polite to everybody, until she drank too much. But he felt sorry for her, so he said, well, let's come to my house. So she did, and then she was there quite a bit. No more hitchhiking, he was taking her off the streets. He felt like he was doing her a good thing. Marry me and you'll never have to go back on the streets again and all that. He was trying to do a good gentleman thing, an elderly man doing the thing, trying to get her off the streets and take care of her and give her whatever she needs until she gets her life better. You say he was being a gentleman, but this guy's old enough to be her father or even her grandfather. Yes, why I say gentleman, because of his age. I don't know if he was really a good gentleman or not, but probably. Usually you are when you're in your 70s. You've lived a full life. And for him to even feel sorry for her, to have, him come, have her come live in his home so she can get herself together, he had to be a pretty caring kind of person. I personally don't believe this is operating here, but in psychology, something referred to as the father complex is thought to develop when a person has poor or non-existent relationship with their father from birth or early childhood. The thought is that if there's an absence of approval, support, and love, which continues into adulthood, this may result in bad decisions with future romantic relationships. Sounds like Eileen, right? I believe there's a lot more to it, but I want to get the thoughts of childhood trauma and relationship expert, Dr. Tasha Jackson. This woman's just trying to get by. And I, it's interesting when I read some of the reports of someone saying in the trial, she was very primitive. I'm like, yeah, she's just trying to get food and love 
And whether that love is that craving from a father, I think she's just trying to find love in general, in any form she can, and a belonging. I didn't hear that in report that she's willing to do anything to make that marriage work. I get that sense as well. What fascinates me about Eileen, though, is that so many serial killers never develop emotions like love and empathy. And given Eileen's mental health and the fact that she had the ability to kill seven men, does she even have the emotional capacity to make a marriage work? Does she have the ability to maintain a relationship is a really good question. Impulsivity, her mood swings, um, she's unstable in her life in general. But I look at it, what attachments did she keep? She obviously kept this Dawn friend through a lifetime. She kept Keith. But what was that environment that she was around? She'd really need somebody who's super stable, who's supportive, who could hear her. Like, what are those triggers of that person? But again, it kind of goes to, I don't know, of like her genetic makeup. Like, if somebody is in a constant state of psychosis, nothing's good, you know, like that's going to be hard. I just kind of wonder what has been normalized for her of ex or expectations for men. Expected for them not to be there. Um, expected them to abuse her. This is the way men are for her. My gut is there's a place in her where she believed men were not all this way. And I kind of wonder if she tried to prove it at times. The marriage is the talk of the town. A big announcement and picture of the newlyweds is splashed across the local paper society section. It's a major pivot point in Eileen's life. If this works out, she'll never have to do sex work again. But her new husband's upper-class circle never accepts Eileen, and her only sliding doors opportunity isn't meant to be. Dawn, as Eileen's best friend, do you think this marriage was the one chance she had to turn her life around? Yeah, absolutely, I believe it's you 100%. He was trying to fix something that was broken. That's a terrible way I just put it, I know. But that's what he was trying to do. And it just didn't work out that way. Eileen was never accepted by the people in Michigan. Was she ever welcomed by the high society millionaires her new husband mixed with? No, she probably would for a little while. But she was used to doing what she wanted, always being out at night and being a prostitute and doing the things she wanted to do and going to bars. He wasn't doing those kinds of things. Smoking away and drinking away and arguing whatever with somebody and all that. She would never have stayed like they are down there now, people with a lot of money and all that. They watch their manners, they watch what they say, and they're pretty kind. You know, that just wouldn't happen to her. Just weeks after exchanging their vows, Louis Gratz Fell takes out a restraining order against Eileen, claiming she hit him with his own cane. The marriage is quickly annulled. She hit him with um, his cane. I beg to differ. I think he probably hit her. I don't care if it was just her butt or something saying, go on, get out of here. I don't want you here no more. Because she turned probably into drinking. And so that ended real quick. In one of her letters to Dawn, Eileen clearly expresses how she feels toward men. Guys, do not, I repeat, do not care about girls. Only for what they can give them. Their real love is sex. 
They don't know what love means. Feeling angry, betrayed, and humiliated, Eileen's anger issues spark up once again inside a local bar, and she's arrested for assault. Eileen's riches are unraveling to rags. After failing to turn her life around in Florida, she hitchhikes back to Michigan just one month later, in July of 1976. On the verge of being mentally and emotionally tipped over the edge, the imminent death of a loved one will soon send Eileen into a dark, dark place. In July 1976, Eileen is not only dealing with a recent annulment, but also that the news that her big brother Keith is gravely ill with cancer at a medical center in San Francisco. Desperate to see him, but with no cash, she hitchhikes to visit him. She gets lucky, and a construction worker gives her $100 to help out. Dawn, Eileen's best friend, has been visiting Keith for the past few months. It was sickening. He couldn't feed himself no more, and he answered me with his eyeballs. That's the only way he could have moved him up or down or backwards. He was just, his, his time obviously was here. Eileen uses some of the money given to her to buy Keith presents, a wooden flute, a book to read, and a Bible. When she arrives at the medical center, she finds her brother lying in a bed, alone in a hospital room. Dear Dawn, he said, don't freak out when I pull the sheet down. My eyes immediately filled with tears as they widened to 50 cent pieces. The tumor was so huge on his neck. I kept telling him, I'm sorry, I'm bawling my eyes out, Keith, but man, this is really scaring me. It isn't long until 21-year-old Keith passes away on July 17th. It's the final straw. Eileen tries to shoot herself in the stomach. Over the next two years, she tries to kill herself with a gun again and again. Six attempts by the time she reaches her 23rd birthday. I think she tried to commit suicide two different times, but I do remember the gun thing, not that I was brought up. She must have been in a really bad place to do that. Real bad to shoot yourself in the stomach. I mean, Keith's death must have hit her hard because she really cared for him. Oh, she couldn't believe it. Well, he really, she really loved him, but they didn't hang out together. Too many years difference. She came home for his funeral and actually seen him in his casket, how skinny he was and how much weight he lost and how much she had suffered the pain he went through. She felt terrible about that. And so that was awful. As her friend, how does it make you feel looking back at all she went through as such a young woman? Well, when I think about it, geez, now that we've been talking about this stuff, her being like, being raped and having getting pregnant then going to a nun's wife's home, people she don't even know, then her grandma coming down there, and she loved her so much, and then her dying, and Keith dying, that was a bit lot. And trying that shooting herself. Now I feel really happy for her that she's finally up in heaven with her brother and my brother. Having had so many failed relationships and now the loss of her beloved brother, Eileen is at an all time low. She has little to live for. The stage is set for her serial killing spree to begin. Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. It's the 1980s. Florida is flooded with cocaine, 70% of it coming into the U.S. via the shores of Miami, at the time dubbed the cocaine capital of the world. In the drugs business, all roads lead to Miami, Florida, America's biggest banking center outside New York. It's the gateway to Central America and the cocaine warehouses. The Medellin cartel's investment in South Florida real estate is estimated at hundreds of millions of dollars. Originating in Colombia, trafficked through the Bahamas and the Dominican Republic, President Ronald Reagan creates a task force to try to take down the drug lords. But the multi-billion dollar cocaine trade has ballooned to such heights that it overtakes the traditional economy. Drug war violence becomes endemic in Florida. 
Miami alone has 621 drug-related murders in 1981. At one point, there are so many dead bodies that the city morgue is forced to store the overload in a refrigerated truck. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. From the beginning of our administration, we've taken strong steps to do something about this horror. And with the drugs comes turf wars, dirty money, and an unprecedented number of homicides. Retired Marion County Chief of Police Brian Jarvis recalls how common this all was. At this time in Florida in the 80s, the cocaine cowboys had control over large areas and many homicides were linked to them. Did police ever assume they could have been responsible for this and that these killings could have been drug or gang related? We had a lot of homicides. You have to understand, in central Florida, we had a lot of other homicides as well. And when we talk about some of the cases in Marion County, other detectives are saying, is that real? I mean, did you guys make this stuff up? There can't be that much violent crime there, but there was. It really was. When you start working a homicide, you don't preclude anything. You follow the evidence and see where it takes you. And it could have been drug-related, it could have been cartel-related or the cocaine cowboys, possibly uh, any one of a number of organized crime syndicates that you might see. And as we'll soon find out, Eileen's weapon of choice wasn't what those involved in the drug killings would typically use, but it meant that police had to consider that organized crime might have been involved with at least their first kill, right? Yeah. So you have to weigh your evidence and see where it takes you. Typically, the drug killings would be a lot more violent than this. They're, they're not going to be using 22 caliber. There were a lot of instances where they were mutilating bodies or cutting off body parts or uh, you know, doing things so that they couldn't be identified as easily. This was not the case here. But you still you keep an open mind and see where that follow where it leads you to. Bodies found shot and dumped along the side of the highways are now familiar sights a perfect, yet completely coincidental, decoy for a female serial killer. It's 1986, and we're in the Zodiac Bar in Daytona Beach, a regular hangout for bikers. Eileen's taking a break from sex work, playing some pool and drinking beer. She's trying to get over a fresh breakup from her first girlfriend. After what she's gone through as a child, a fresh dose of betrayal and rejection has woken the beast inside of her. Dear Dawn, Tony was my first Leslie encounter, living together after a year. After I bought her all the equipment for a cleaning business, around four grand or so, she up and left me. I was so in love with her, her ripping me off didn't bug me, but I just wanted her back. Bad. I was hanging out, sudsing up all the pain at this bar, and suddenly this big guy walks in. Out of the blue, he mouths off, I'm gonna kick your lezzy ass black and blue all over this bar. My head in seconds blew up in a heated rage. I slammed my beer down and jumped his ass like grease lightning, kicked the fuck out of him. This is a major pivot point for Eileen. For years, she's taken the abuse, but this time, she's retaliated, and in a big way. Not only is Eileen genetically predisposed to violence, but 
Her upbringing is filled with trauma, violence tarnishing her early life. And this is the first real indication of how it's affected her. When pushed, Eileen can explode at the slightest provocation. I spoke to Dr. Tasha Jackson about how this has developed. What we're seeing here might be an artifact of her complex trauma, one trauma bleeding into another trauma into another trauma, but they're manifesting into violent behavior. We have triggers, right, and learned triggers. She had violence with men. She learned, you know, whether I don't know what happened in that early pre-verbal to stage of her parents at her home before three. Violence though, right? And then violence with the rapes, violence, physical abuse from her grandfather. Those are the triggers to that part of that body coming up and acting out in that violent way. So absolutely, I, it, it does make sense of like, this is where I need to fight. You know, there's my trigger to the fight or flight. It's gonna come out here. That being said, when she got a loss of one of her lesbian relationships, and she said in a letter, I was not upset about it. I was okay with it. How much insight does she have? She's just been abandoned. Again, a trigger of abandon from another woman. And was this a trigger from her abandonment of women in the past? It's a lover. Did she take her anger out? The water's already boiling. And then she hits it and she goes with a man and they do something and then it sets off into it. And her being set off, like the bar fight, shows that when her short fuse is triggered, just the smallest thing can make her lose control. If you think of somebody who's come back from war and combat, like literally she went to like war and combat, right? Then you have that person with maybe a PTSD response, let's say fireworks on the 4th of July, and it gets, you know, the, the response is there and they act out, right? You have the flashbacks, you're in the moment, everything feels like you're back in combat again. And we have empathy for them, right? Oh my God, you have served our country, you have done all this. And here you go, of like, did something similar to her happen like this? She is being triggered, she's right back in the moment, flashbacks, and boom. It's not other, it's not other places for her. A few months on, and Eileen's back shooting pool in the Zodiac bar, chucking scents in the jukebox, and having beers with her new love interest, a 24-year-old woman named Tyria Moore. It's deja vu. As with her ex-girlfriend, it's another whirlwind romance. They live with each other just weeks after meeting. Tyria, known as Ty, is a motel maid. Eileen claims her income from sex work supported her and Tyria. Dear Dawn, I had regulars I was happy with. Prostitution is my guilt and it led me to violent Johns. But cold blood murder? No. I should have quit after the first incident in prostitution. But due to a love beyond words for Tyria, I continued to hustle. I still love her to death. Dawn, from the letters Eileen wrote to you, it sounds as though she would have done anything to keep Tyria happy. That's absolutely true. Do you think Tyria truly loved Eileen in the same way Eileen loved her? Not a chance. But I'm sure she loved her because she gave her everything she wanted. And it was all about partying and going out to carnivals and stupid stuff like that. And Eileen, no matter how exhausted she was, if she'd been up all night, make sure that Ty got all that. She loved her with her heart and her soul and her mind and all. 
She loved her that with all that. Ty loved her just maybe with her heart a little bit. So Eileen was doing as much sex work as possible to make money. That's true. Trying to make sure she had everything for her and so she could at least get some rest and sleep. But she wanted everything to be perfect. She really loved Ty. She loved her with all her heart. Eileen becomes so infatuated and desperate to keep hold of her that she will do anything in the name of love. It won't be long until the bullet-ridden body of Eileen's first victim is found, and the hunt for a serial killer begins. Dear Don, you wouldn't have wanted to know me in 89. Oh, I was evil. The devil had my britches strapped. No kidding. A mental mess because of the stress of society I had endured for years. Males are the very cause of women in distress. It's just two weeks before Christmas. Not far from Daytona Beach, two scrap metal hunters have just stumbled upon an unexpected find. A decomposing body bundled in a carpet and dumped in undergrowth near Interstate 95 and US-1. The body is 51-year-old Richard Charles Mallory. Mallory's beige 1977 Cadillac had been found abandoned 12 days earlier near Ormond Beach, several miles away from where his body would be found. David Taylor is a retired investigator. He worked alongside Brian Jarvis, who we met earlier on the Eileen Warnos case. I want to know what he recalls from this gruesome discovery. His body was found in a remote wooded area, even though it was fairly close to highly traveled areas like the interstate and some other U.S. highways, his body was off the roadway far enough as to where once you were inside, it, it looked like you were in the middle of nowhere. Uh, his body was found, uh, had been rolled in a carpet. Uh, one arm had been extending out of that carpet. Two guys that were out looking for junk that had noticed this carpet with the hand sticking out, but also they found a couple birds that was pecking on the guy's arm. So when he got closer, uh, they were able to distinguish that it was in fact that of a human arm uh, with advanced decomposition present. Uh, they are the ones that notified uh, law enforcement by calling 911. Wow, that visual of the birds pecking on his arm, that's pretty intense. From the information that the police had, what sort of man was Mallory? So what we had learned about Richard Mallory, he was a uh, electronics uh, type of a guy. He did back in the day VCR repair. Uh, he would like to visit strip joints. Uh, he would like to hang out with, for lack of a better phrase, go-go dancers. So that was the lifestyle. Uh, that he engaged in. Uh, what do we call that in the business? We basically call that, you know, he's engaging in high-risk behavior. So, uh, you know, a lot of things happen at those type of environments. People are susceptible to be preyed upon, to be victimized, be robbed, etc. So, you know, and that's where a, a lot of things do happen in that type of environment. So once we understood that, uh, that helped us to paint a social picture of who this guy is and, and what he does. They're able to identify Mallory through fingerprint analysis because his prints are already on file. 
for what at the time is described as a minor criminal infraction. David, not only was it hard to identify Mallory at first, but this is someone with a colorful background. It's a complex case. What's the next step for police? He was in what we would call an advanced state of decomposition. So uh, he was not instantly identified, and it was days before a positive identification was made on his remains. As far as Richard Mallory, one of the very first things you do in an investigation is once you have the identification established, you have to work feverishly to identify what did this guy do those last 24 to 48 hours prior to his death. Uh, you want to know where he's been, who did he talk to, when did he last eat, uh, what were his habits, what places did he like to frequent. So in every one of these locations, the game plan is, hopefully you can find some people that had contact with him that could tell you a little bit about who he is and what he does and his social habits. And also, you're looking for at what point did his path cross with the offender. On November 30th, two weeks before his body is found, Richard Mallory is driving along Interstate 75 when he spots a young woman, Eileen Warnos. He picks her up with the intention of paying for sex but it does not go to plan. After they pull over, Eileen shoots Mallory four times in the chest. But as Brian Jarvis recalls, the murder weapon is unusual. We'd found that he had been shot with a 22 caliber weapon, which at the time it didn't mean anything. It, you know, the fact that it was a 22 turned out to be a big part of the case. But at the time, it was just a case where a 22 was used. And that's not your typical weapon of choice when you're when you're carrying a weapon, that's typically like something you go for plinking or target shooting or something, not something you typically carry around. But there is another twist in this tale. Eileen will later tell police she shot him dead in self-defense. She says he raped or tried to rape her. Truth or a lie? It will soon unravel that a vital puzzle piece about Mallory's past isn't showing up on police checks. It turns out Eileen might not be the only one with a violent criminal history. This first kill certainly won't be her last. One man down, six to go. Mind of a Monster, Eileen Warnos is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Harriet Mortar. Editors are Sirkin Nihat and Millie Tapner. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our production manager is Alexandra Kelly. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Our archive producer is Katya Long. Arrow Media series producer is Gabrielle Nash. And executive producer is Stuart Pender. Eileen Warnos is played by Vicki Thorne. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.